Hello and welcome to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Edwick. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own students here at the University of Edinburgh. If you'd like to get in touch with a question, suggestion, or if you want to be featured on the podcast, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USI. You can also drop us an email at usi.podcast at gmail.com. Today's episode is part one of a four-part mini-series on coronavirus, in which we're exploring what it's like to do science during a pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic has turned the world on its head. What started out as a small outbreak of cases of pneumonia in China towards the end of 2019 has exploded into a global disease crisis that has seen 54% of the world's population, that's 4.2 billion people, go into lockdown. Researchers and students from the University of Edinburgh rallied to respond to the crisis, using their skills and their knowledge to take the fight to coronavirus. In this mini-series, we're going to highlight this incredible work, explore what it's like doing science during a pandemic, and discuss the knock-on effects this could have on science going forwards. As we're in lockdown, all the interviews were conducted over Zoom, so please excuse any funky audio. Does anyone else wish they bought shares in Zoom, by the way? Okay, so imagine for a moment, you've got two people and they've both tested positive for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that's responsible for COVID-19. Both are young, healthy, with no underlying conditions. One of them gets extremely mild symptoms and doesn't even realise they've got the virus, but the other person becomes critically ill and has to be rushed to intensive care. This is more than just a hypothetical situation. Young, healthy individuals can have drastically different responses to the virus, and some have even died from it. So it begs the question, why are some people more severely affected by disease than others? So my name is Max Foreman. Um, I'm a fourth year medical student at the University of Edinburgh. To find out why some people are more severely affected by disease than others, I spoke to Max. He's part of the Bailey Lab, which is based in the Rosen Institute here at the University of Edinburgh. Um, And I'm connected to Dr. Bailey's lab um, because I did my research project for my third year. Um, supervised by Kenny. The lab is run by Dr. Kenneth Bailey, a consultant in the intensive care unit at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh and a specialist in the genetics of infectious diseases and critical illness. The lab focuses on understanding the genetic factors that drive different responses to infections, and these factors can be really important. In a 2013 study from the US National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, They found that a single DNA mutation was responsible for predisposing patients to chronic infection from the Epstein-Barr virus, which is responsible for the disease called mononucleosis, or as it's more commonly known, mono. But how do you know which genes are making some people more sick than others? Well, the lab uses a technique called genomics, which is the sequencing, mapping and study of people's genomes to look for the genes that are important in different responses to infection. We all have a genome that's 3.2 billion uh, base pairs long and and each of those points can vary with one of four nucleotides and between me and you there'll be millions of differences in our genome Um, and now we can we can look at you know we can we can read out the genome and we can see what the differences are between people and if you do that over enough people and you have a group who let's say have a disease and don't have a disease or you have a group all of whom have a disease and some of them get sicker than others You can make comparisons and you can try and look for parts of the genome which seem more important for determining those differences. 
So by looking through the genome, we can look for those areas that are important. But then we also want to be able to take this knowledge and translate it into other fields like medicine or clinical applications. The wider field that the lab works in is called translational genomics, and they do just that. And the idea of translational genomics is that if we can understand some of the differences in people's genetics or their genomics about why some people get more sick than others, that that might um, point us in the right directions of, of where we can develop more effective therapies. And I suppose the translational part is that the lab uh, includes everything from people whose expertise is coding and, um, you know, in the computer science side of it, through to kind of traditional wet lab techniques mm-hmm. um, and through to kind of in, in vivo animal models. Um, and, and there's a drive now towards large animal models. So taking what's learned from the kind of computational simulations and then the cell work, and then working on animals, so in particular, genetically modified pigs, because one of the big uh, limitations of a lot of the animal work that then tries to get moved into humans is that if it's done on small animals like mice, they're not really very representative for how humans behave when they get critically ill. The big advantage of the translational genomics approach is that it makes it easier to look for drugs and therapies that could work when treating patients. Often, severe illness and death from infections are not a direct result of the invading pathogen, but from an overreaction by our own immune system. Basically, our immune systems are trying to kill us. The human immune system is the result of an ongoing evolutionary arms race with bacteria, fungi, and viruses. It has to be constantly adapting and updating to respond to new threats, and as a consequence, it's just ludicrously complex. With translational genomics, the hope is that we can sidestep this complexity and hone in on the exact part of the immune system to target with drugs. And work like this is really important, as there are still conditions that result from infections that we don't fully understand. Max told me about sepsis, which is a common cause of death in critically ill infected patients. Unfortunately, the traditional methods of drug discovery haven't brought us any closer to a potential treatment. And sepsis is a condition um, where the body's immune response becomes dysregulated and starts damaging the body itself. And, you know, you get this in in response to different types of infections. And it's very apparent that some people get very, very sick with sepsis and others don't. And for the last 40 or 50 years, the the research kind of um, method has been to try lots of different individual compounds that, that for whatever reason, have some biological plausibility that they that they might, you know, cause a difference. And and none of those have generated um, therapies that are are used at the moment. Um, And so, you know, I suppose the the idea is that that maybe rather than just just keeping going the way that we have been, which hasn't been working, then try a new approach, which, which, like you say, narrows the search space and allows um, a more targeted kind of way of determining what might be a good molecule to try. So with their work on translational genomics, infectious disease and critical illness, Dr. Bailey's lab was ideally placed to respond to the coronavirus outbreak. In 2016, Dr. Bailey launched Genomic, which stands for the Genetics of Mortality in Critical Care. It is a collaborative, open-source research study that aims to understand the genetic factors that affect critical illness outcomes. In particular, the question that we posed at the start, why do some people get more sick than others? Genomic was a study that's been set up to try and gather the genomes of patients who get critically ill and, and a particular subset of patients, so, so young uh, patients who are otherwise well and yet still end up in critical care critically unwell. And, and the idea being that there must be something different about the genome in those patients which causes them to become so unwell. 
The study was set up in such a way that it could react quickly to investigate emerging infectious diseases. So when COVID-19 hit, focus shifted almost immediately. Genomic was also set up with a kind of clause um, for emerging infections. So that's new infections that we don't know anything about. Uh, And so it was very kind of dynamic and and quick to be able to uh, become a way of studying the genomics of the host response to COVID. And, And that's exactly what happened. And the aim is to get a genome for every sick patient with, with COVID in the country, basically, who ends up yeah. in a critical event, obviously subject to, to them agreeing to be in the study or their loved ones agreeing to happen in the study. The first cases were recruited in March, and there has been a huge increase in the number of sites and beds involved since the project was given priority status by the National Institute for Health Research. Genomic has been massively scaled up in the last um, kind of month or two, and a lot of that <laughs> has been has been more logistical challenges and <laughs> which aren't necessarily the kind of um super sexy side of science but yeah. uh, one one good example i've been helping is is uh building the, the sample boxes so each sample gets posted from a critical care unit yeah. uh, you know in a little biohazard box and those boxes arrive flat packed and we have to fold them so a whole team of uh, people who'd otherwise be busy in the lab so the lab has a few a few PhDs and postdocs and a couple of um, scientists who are, who are employed full time. And, yeah. um, you know, we've all been kind of uh, taking shifts, building boxes and posting boxes out to ICUs. Um, yeah. And then there's also been a huge uh, logistical kind of challenge in terms of just setting up sites. Um, obviously, there's, you know, a whole kind of ethical process that has to go through and approvals yeah. and, and local procedures and things. Um, and, and this was all run uh, by one woman called Fiona, who, who's been doing amazingly. And we've now got a few people, me included, who are kind of helping her kind of man the inbox and respond to queries, you know, who can we yeah. recruit, how we recruit. So, so quite a lot of it's just been um, helping the logistical side as much of anything. Thanks to the incredibly hard work of Max and the other lab members, the project has steadily recruited more and more patients. In the UK, as of recording, just over 3,000 patients have been recruited across 205 intensive care units. I think the, the samples are starting to come back now. So um, you can keep up to date if you're interested at the genomic Twitter feed. Um, but, but I've seen recently the samples get posted back to um, a lab at the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, and they're starting to do the genetic analysis of those. And once the data becomes available, then, then people will start to, to analyze the data and see if there's anything there. Ultimately, the project is aiming to get 100,000 samples. And this may sound like a lot, but the key in genomic studies like this is just volume. As Max mentioned before, the human genome is around 3 billion base pairs long. And between any two people, there are millions of differences. Looking for the ones that are important is like looking for a needle in the proverbial genomic haystack. Big sample sizes give us more confidence that a gene we've found plays an important role in making someone more sick than someone else. The long-term kind of aim of, of any of this kind of research really is to find out what, you know, what are the differences and, and how can we make the people who, you know, let's say there's 100 people who get critically ill, who get COVID, let's say, and, and you know, I'm sure you're aware that even, even in our age group, um, you know, there is a small proportion who still get very unwell. And, mm-hmm. and why, why do those people get so unwell um, with these diseases? And is there any way we can kind of alter their biology so it looks more like the people who fight it off directly yeah. and that and that might be that um you know that their immune system gets too excited in the face of the disease and it needs to be dampened down or it might be that it's it's not responding uh, aggressively enough and it needs to be kicked into gear mm. um 
and and those are the kind of answers that that perhaps this kind of research can can find in the quest for these answers genomic is part of a host of other studies that together aim to further our understanding of covid and determine which treatment options work best and for who they work best the studies have all been designed to be deployed quickly and in a coordinated manner in a response to a disease outbreak and this is thanks to a group called ISRIC, which stands for the International Severe Acute Respiratory and Emerging Infection Consortium. They've come up with a standardised method for any clinic to collect samples from patients, and this allows us to rapidly study and understand emerging infectious diseases as they happen. Within ISRIC is a group called 4C, which just stands for the Coronavirus Clinical Characterization Consortium. They're a UK-based group of doctors and scientists that are focusing on coronavirus in particular, this is a, um, a worldwide kind of consortium that's been set up to study emerging infections and respiratory pathogens. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically the idea is to have a protocol that can be activated really quickly. So setting up and designing these kind of studies takes a long time and a lot of organization. Yeah. And if there's a reasonable amount of similarity in, in what you're studying, so let's say you're studying emerging respiratory infections, you can, you can already know the kind of things that you're going to want to know and you can design the study in advance, and then when um, a, new, a new disease appears, um, the study can just kind of very quickly be altered to fit that. Um, yeah. So that's essentially what ISRIC 4C is. Also, I think if there's anything we've learned today, it's that scientists love a catchy acronym. Do you think we'll get hashtag NASP trending for this podcast? No, me neither. Anyway, another great thing about these studies is that because the data is collected in the same way, it can be pooled into one large source. I think the other thing that, that's really great about it is that, you know, obviously something like this comes along and everyone wants to understand it and everyone starts to study it. But actually, if, if everyone collects data in slightly different ways, it doesn't really work because you can't compare the data sets. Whereas if yeah. you have one standard, um, well, in this case, you know, the, the clinical characterization protocol, <laughs> you have one set of data which is agreed by, you know, by a set of experts who say these are the kind of things that we need to know uh, about respiratory pathogens and, and what happens to patients when they get them. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, that's another thing I've been helping with is, is a, a number of medical students who are just um, just doing the data entry, you know, and it's, it's yeah. very um, basic kind of kind of work. It's just taking <laughs> information from, from the patient record system, uh, the NHS patient record system, and entering it into into the online database for, for ISRIC. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you, you do see by doing that, you see the, the incredible amount of detail that goes in. And it's, you know, it's everything from, you know, when did they first start having symptoms? Which of these huge list of symptoms did the patient have before they got it? Um, you know, how did they progress? Uh, what kind of treatments did they need in hospital? And, you know, how were they afterwards? You know, how did they recover from the illness and what happened afterwards? Yeah. And I guess it's, it's uh, really important to have all this information just open to open access essentially to everyone. So whoever needs yeah. access to that can, can see it. Yeah. And, I, and, and that is a big part of both, both ISRIC and genomic is, is, you know, that the collaborators are welcome and that data should be shared openly. And, and I think that's really important. And, and my understanding is that that's a big part of how the lab works and, and how yeah. many work, which I think is really good. It's clear that collaboration has been a huge part of the response to the crisis. And Max told me that labs across the country had been diverting their resources to COVID. Each lab's kind of con- contributing in the way that they best can. And, and you know, Kenny's been, been studying critical illness and emerging infections for a while now. So this, this 
you know, the lab was kind of made for this in a way. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of other labs won't be so focused on this exact corner of science. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some great examples of, of labs, um, you know, still finding really creative ways to help and, and doing things. And that might be anything from, uh, you know, the, the new setup at the Western where the Institute of Genetic and Molecular Medicine, I think that's the IGMM, I think that's what it stands for. Um, <laughs> but, but they've set up a coronavirus testing thing because they've, you know, they've already got labs with, with the equipment to do PCR and to do the kind of tests which are needed. Yeah. Um, so, that, you know, that's one great example. Or, or another one is, you know, I've heard in the informatics building, people are, are building uh, face visors and masks for, for yeah. NHS stuff. So, so, you know, I think there's amazing ways that, that people can help. Speaking of masks and visors, make sure you come back for episode two to hear all about a business startup led by students here at the university that has been making personal protective equipment for the NHS. But as Max says, there's so many ways you can help, and you don't need a fully stocked lab or a 3D printer to contribute. Personally, I'm not doing anything particularly advanced at the moment. I'm, I'm at, most of the way I'm helping is just doing quite simple either logistics or helping posting things or helping organize things. Yeah. Um, and I have a little bit of knowledge about how the lab works because I've been there for a year, but I'm not doing anything particularly special. So I think I would put the message out there that if, assuming that your podcast has listeners who are you know, studying science at the uni and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you want to help, they're, they're, for sure there's ways to help. And they're not all going to be um, super cool things, but they will be useful. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, useful things you can do if you're, if you're kind of keen and you just want to get involved and, and help. Thank you so much for listening to our first ever episode. Really hope you enjoyed it. The coronavirus mini-series is an opportunity to get your feedback. What you liked, what you didn't like, and what we could do differently. So please don't hesitate to get in touch. The podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. You can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. That's E-U-S-C-I Massive thanks to Max Foreman for his time and his knowledge, and for giving us an insight to the important work done by Dr. Bailey and his lab. You can stay updated with the progress of the genomic study and learn more about the other studies at their website, genomic.org. This podcast is edited by my partner in crime, Helena Cornu. The awesome podcast cover art was designed by our USI co-editor-in-chief, Apple Chu. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama, and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop, both by Kevin MacLeod. Links in the show notes. I've been your host, Tom Edwick. Until next time, keep it science. <sighs> keep it science? Really? Yeah? Is science an adjective? I have no idea. All the cool sign-offs are taken already, you know? Neil deGrasse Tyson's, keep looking up. That sounds amazing. You know, it's punchy, it's short, and like he's an astrophysicist, so it, it just works. Mm-hmm. You know, here we're trying to capture the whole of science, and I think that's, that's kind of hard. Okay, but keep it science? Well, I think our listeners hopefully can cut us some slack. You know, it's only episode one. The only way is up. And as always, I bid you to keep looking up. <laughs>